If you will, take your Bible and turn to Exodus chapter 20. Exodus 20, if you are in need of a Bible, there should be one in the back of a pew in front of you or around you, and Exodus 20, where we'll be reading, is on page 61 of that Bible. If you are actually a guest, uh, at the end of this, uh, at the end of explaining this text, I will pray and uh, we'll sing one final song, and I'll actually leave as we sing that song, and I'll be in the foyer. I would love to meet you, uh, to know you, to know your name, to get to know you a bit, Um, but that's where I'll be at the end of the service. Exodus chapter 20, what I want to do is, as we have done each week walking through these Ten Commandments, is to read all of them together. So we'll begin in verse 1 through verse 17. Exodus chapter 20, beginning in verse 1. This is what the Spirit says to us. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath, or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I am the Lord, I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. For the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, And rested on the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honor your father and your mother, that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor, you shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. Let's pray and ask for the Lord's help. Father, we come now to your word. We want to hear what you say. And so we ask for your help. I ask for your help in preaching that I might speak clearly your truth, not my own opinion. We pray as those who hear your word that you will open our minds and our hearts, that what we know not you might teach us, what we have not you might give us, and what we are not you might make us for the sake of Jesus. And we pray it in His name. 
Amen. The longest-running magazine in the United States is the Saturday Evening Post. It's over 200 years old, and the cover art is uh, iconic. Many will know the name Norman Rockwell, who painted 321 covers uh, over the span of 47 years. In fact, his name is so associated with the Post that people think he painted every cover uh, that came out uh, between 1916 and 1963, uh, but he didn't. In fact, one of the ones that looks like he painted it in that exaggerated realism, uh, but he didn't paint it, was painted by, a Le- by a Leslie Thrasher, and it's called Tipping the Scales. And this pictures a butcher in his apron and his little green visor And across from him is a seemingly respectable woman, dressed well. She's got a flowered hat on, and she's come to buy a turkey. And so the turkey is on the scale that sits in between them. And both of their eyes are fixed on the scale and not on the turkey, because depending on how much the turkey weighs will determine how much it costs. Actually, take a look at the picture here. Now, what you'll notice is that the butcher is taking his index finger and pushing down on the scale (laughs) to make the turkey weigh a bit more so that he makes a bit more money. And at the exact same time, the woman is using her index finger to press up from underneath the scale so that the turkey weighs less and so she can save some money. What we may not realize as we laugh at a picture like this is that both of the characters in this picture break the Eighth Commandment. You shall not steal. Cecil Myers, in in referring to this picture, said, uh, The butcher and the lovely lady would resent being called thieves. The lovely lady would never rob a bank or steal a car. The butcher would be indignant if anyone accused him of stealing. And neither saw anything wrong with a little deception that would make a few cents for one or save a few cents for the other. The ease with which these characters may dismiss their own guilt is not far from us, is it? Especially as we consider commandments 5 to 9, the murder and the adultery and the stealing, and the lying. And we squirm and we wriggle our way out of this guilt in a few ways. One is by focusing solely on the external actions. Well, I've never actually killed anyone. I've never actually stepped out and committed adultery. Another way we actually try to squirm out of guilt is by only focusing these sins on the big ones, right? I've never robbed a bank. I've never committed perjury in court or told, you know, a really big lie. You see, we forget the fact that these sins don't just come in large packages. They actually come in small ones. They come in ones that are so small, you might just think you could sweep them under the rug. 
or just ones that are sitting around long enough that you don't even notice they're there anymore. The third way we try to escape guilt is actually by focusing on the culture around us, right? Or the people around us. You know, the murderers in the headlines. Uh, the, the co-worker who committed adultery. Uh, the thieves that are breaking into cars in our neighborhood. The liars in political office. That's where the real problem lies. And we do this because we want to feel like we can look the Lord in the face and say to Him what the rich young man said to Jesus when He asked about all these commandments. We want to say, oh yes, all these I have kept. What do I still lack? We want to justify ourselves. But friends, I want to be very honest with you. In my study of these commands, in my preaching of these commands, in my meditating of, of, on these commands, I have not found myself walking away from Exodus 20 feeling justified or proud or praying, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men. I've actually found myself on my knees. I've, had, I've found myself with my head hanging low. Praying something more akin to, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And in part, this is what the law does. It shows us the holiness of God, and then it shows us the holiness that He requires of us, because later He will say, be holy as I am holy. And when He shows us this, we can't help if we look honestly At Exodus 20, we can't help but see how far that we've fallen short. And we're all driven to our knees together. And we're all bowed down together. And we're all humbled together. And I don't expect that we'll walk away from the Eighth Commandment any differently than we've walked away from all the other ones. But it's actually good for us to do that. Because you see, the people who enter the kingdom don't enter with their head held high. They enter with their head bowed down, needing a Savior to lift it up. And He does that. That's the good news. But let's think about this commandment. You shall not steal. First, let's think about stealing from others. Stealing from others. One of the realities that lies behind this commandment is the idea of rightful ownership. The notion that individuals own possessions, have private property, their money is really theirs. In fact, there's no meaningful way to talk about stealing unless somebody owns something. So in order to understand this commandment, in order to obey this commandment, we first must come to a place where we respect the whole notion of ownership. And for Israel, this would be especially crucial. I mean, they are on a journey, right, from Egypt to the promised land. And the notion that their food is really theirs, and their animals are really theirs, and their supplies are really theirs, that is crucial because these items are supposed to get them to the promised land and help them get set up in the promised land. And theft between families 
will only result in distrust and chaos and strife. And honestly, that kind of thing would just make them like every other nation in the world, wouldn't it? It certainly would make them like our nation. Wouldn't you say we've created, created quite a situation for ourselves of strife and chaos and distrust? In part through theft. But God has told these people, you're to be holy. You're to be different. You're to be distinct. You're not to be like every other nation. So you shall not steal. Now, the first thing that typically comes to mind when we think about stealing is the taking of others' property, either through stealth and deception or through intimidation and violence. You know, someone breaks into a home to take what they want, or there's a stick-up at a local gas station. Uh, just not too long ago, you know, out here in the parking lot, my catalytic converter got stolen off my truck while I was in here rehearsing with the praise band on a Sunday night. This is the kind of thing we think about. But what we must realize, I mean, that is true, that is stealing, but this kind of stealing doesn't actually know a class. It actually transcends class. The rich steal in order to increase their security, in order to gain power, because enough is never enough. The poor steal in order to find security. And sometimes because they think money or that thing will actually solve their problems. Not only does stealing transcend classes, it's also quite creative, isn't it? There's, we, we come up with, with innumerable ways to actually steal. There is the shoplifting of small items at a grocery store or a makeup counter or a gas station. There's underpaying our taxes on purpose. There's refusing to pay our taxes. There's making false claims to, to Social Security or to disability or making a false insurance claim. What about the whole notion of borrowing money with no intention of ever paying it back? No, I'll tell on myself, on a very young and stupid self. When I was in high school, I walked around one day. I often found myself... Uh, uh, very forgetful and not taking my lunch money to school. So I found myself often having to borrow a dollar because lunch was a dollar. And so I decided one day, but there was a special counter. I went to a school with many uh, wealthy individuals. Uh, I was not one of them. But there was a special counter you could go to and get the more expensive lunch. And so I decided I was going to walk around one day and borrow dollars from as many people as would agree to loan me a dollar because I wanted to eat the special lunch, because they had the good pizza, not the rectangle pizza, you know, that you can hammer a nail with. They've got, they've got the good pizza that you can eat, and you can digest it, and it's wonderful. And so I borrowed up to $10 that day, and do you know the ver that very afternoon I couldn't remember the 10 people from whom I had borrowed? And I still owed them, even to this day. Now, I have nine $1 bills in my wallet, I'm fairly confident. So if they were to show up, I could at least pay nine of them back. But I didn't borrow that money with any intention of paying it back. I borrowed it because I was just trying to accomplish what I wanted to accomplish. Isn't that what some people do? We rack up consumer debt to a level we know we will never claw our way out of. 
We take out student loans, you know, student loans are for $150,000 so that we can work a job that pays 30 a year. It's quite something with no intention of really thinking I'll ever actually pay this back. The wicked, you see, borrow, but do not pay back. That's what Psalm 37 says. What about governments that borrow trillions with no intention of paying it back? And then on the flip side, there are those companies that steal by taking advantage of the borrower and and charging exorbitant interest on whatever it is that they are loaning. And then there's price gouging in the market, and there's exaggerating the value of things. In Israel, in the market, this would, this would look kind of like the butcher in the painting, except instead of a finger going on the scale, you would just rig the scale and rig the weights. But Leviticus 19 says, you shall have just balances, just weights, a just ephah, a just hen. Those ephah and hen, those are measurements. Those are uh, 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 amounts. You see how creative we can get in stealing? Employees actually steal, don't they? Turn in false expense reports. Be lazy on the job when they should be working. Goofing off on on Facebook, doing, doing personal business on company time. Turning the company's office supplies into their child's school supplies. Extending their breaks beyond the time given. And then on the flip side, employers steal, don't they? Don't they demand a certain level of work without paying a fair wage sometimes? Isn't it possible for a... Doesn't, haven't you ever heard a story about a, someone, a, some company demanding extra work but not being willing to pay overtime? What about the downsizing of certain places just to take advantage of the best employees and save some cash by not hiring extra people but not compensating the really good people that you kept? Children steal. They take cash out of mom's wallet. She'll never know that that dollar's gone. They'll take the debit card. They'll take candy from their siblings. They'll take things that are just aren't theirs. Students steal, don't they? Taking answers on a test that are not their own. Looking over the shoulder of another. copying the homework of someone else. And parents, honestly, sometimes aid and abed this theft by doing their children's homework for them. Students also steal by taking ideas that aren't theirs to write papers, plagiarizing. Just last summer, a very prominent pastor was identified as plagiarizing his sermons from another prominent pastor. It's everywhere. Theft is everywhere. There's pirated copies of movies and music. There's sharing gym key cards so you don't have to pay for two uh, two memberships. Then you just go on and on and on and on. The whole notion is that I get something for nothing. 
that I benefit and someone else loses. I never think about really the loss of the other person. I just think about my gain. I just think about what I get. And some of it just sits, this whole notion of getting something for nothing just sits right in your face in our culture, doesn't it? You don't believe me? Go to the gas station on the way home. And right there on the counter is something begging you to try to get something for nothing. Buy the ticket. Take your chances. It's interesting. I just saw and I just recently started seeing an ad. The way we, our television is set up, I, we see the same ads four to 6,000 times before they cycle through. And so I uh, saw an ad where this uh, sports betting app is willing to give you $200 in bets if you pay $5. Now, why would they do that? Always ask that question. If it's too good to be true, it probably is. Why would they do that? Because they want to get their hooks in you. Because you know what? People say they aren't theologians, but these people understand depravity. They may not call it depravity. They may not call it anything like that, but they understand human nature that we, as a race, love to get something for nothing. We love to instantly get rich. Because some people are buying that ticket thinking it will solve their problems. When at best it would be like Novocaine at a dental office. It may numb you to your problems for a while, but it will not solve the problem. You shall not steal. You shall not take from others profit and pleasure for yourself at the pain and loss of others. You shall not take things. You shall not take money. You shall not take time. You shall not take. You shall not take. You shall not take. The Christian, friends, is not a taker. You shall not steal. But we don't merely steal from human beings. That brings us to the second heading, stealing from God. Stealing from God. You see, God actually owns everything. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. Even those things that we possess, that we own, they aren't actually ours. They are the Lord's. He owns it all. We belong to Him. Every single human being belongs to Him. His stamp of ownership is on us. When I graduated from seminary, Susan got me the gift of an embosser. Now, if you don't know what that is, uh, an embosser... Uh, basically, you press it into paper, and it will put word. You know, the words will stand up on that paper, so you can read it. And so, on the front page of my books, I can emboss, and it says, "From the Library of Toby Johnson." And so that when I loan you that book, no matter how long it sits on your shelf, you know it ain't yours. It belongs to somebody else. That stamp tells us so. 
And you see, the image of God is God's embossing on human beings. We belong to Him. His stamp is on our soul. And so whether we use ourselves for our own purposes or whether we use money or things for our own purposes, we steal from God. I mean, the the Bible actually refers to this directly when it comes to finances in Malachi chapter 3. Will a man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. But you say, how have we robbed you? In your tithes and contributions. You see, we steal from God when we don't use money the way that He desires. And part of His command, part of His desire for your money and for my money is that it's handed to us that we might hand it to another. We are simply the person in the middle. He wants to entrust us with things that we give to advance His kingdom. He wants to give us things that we give in order to alleviate the pain of others. He gives so that we can give. In fact, our giving is in part a recognition of the fact that everything comes from Him. And when we don't use anything that He gives us, in the, when we use things that He gives us in, the way, in ways that He does not prescribe, that is robbing Him. If you, listen, I don't see, if you're a member here, I don't see your giving statement. I never want to see your giving statement at any moment in my entire life. But I will tell you, if you are not giving, not just here, if you're just not giving, you are robbing God. If I am not giving, I am robbing God. We also steal from God in our work. Now listen. When we are lazy and don't do the job to the best of our ability, when we take the time that ought to be used for work and use it for other things, when we call in sick when we're really healthy but it's a nice day and the golf course is calling, We rob God. Because who do you work for really? Who do I work for really? Well, Colossians 3 says, Whatever you do, do it heartily as unto the Lord and not unto men. You see, when I rob my employer, I'm not just robbing my employer. I'm robbing God. I'm stealing from Him. But friends, it just it goes farther than that. Just think about the first four commandments, all right? Think about the first four commandments. Look up in verse 3. You shall have no other gods before me. When we chase idols, when we make something else Lord of our life, when something else dominates how we will live and how we will spend and how we will work and how we will do whatever, when something else is that controlling influence and not God, do you know what we have done? We have robbed God of the worship that He deserves. Commandment two, you shall not make any images of God. Do you know what we do when we seek to make visible images of the invisible God, we rob Him of His transcendence. We rob Him of some of His character. We rob Him of some of His identity, some of who He says that He is. You can't capture Him. 
You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. Verse 7. When we take the Lord's name in vain, we rob him of reverence and honor that he deserves. Remember the Sabbath day. Because God says he, his creation work was accomplished in six days and he rested on the Sabbath and you do the same. And when we don't, we rob him of the day that he has set aside for his purposes for us. Do you see how deep this runs? Do you know how easy it is to just in your Bible reading, you read through Exodus 20 and you get to this and you get to the Eighth Commandment, you're like, you shall not steal. All these I have kept. What else do I need to do? On to the next one. Check. And God says, wait, just, just, just wait a minute. Because at its heart, stealing says, I want it and so I'll take it. I deserve it and you don't. The heart of stealing, you see, is a heart actually set on Self, not on loving God, not on loving neighbor as myself, but loving me, serving me. And so you see, in the end, it's worse than that. It's worse than robbing God in our finances. It's worse than robbing God in our, just in our work. It's worse than just these first four commandments. Every sin robs God. Philip Ryken said that the real theft is that every sin we commit dishonors God and thus steals the glory that our lives ought to give Him. So friends, look at me. If you're a sinner, then you're a thief. You have robbed God of glory that He deserves. You have robbed him. That's why Martin Luther says, if we look at mankind and all its conditions, it is nothing but a vast, wide stable of thieves. Friends, and here's the thing. You may steal from your employer and get away with it. You may steal your neighbor's cable or your neighbor's, neighbor's Wi-Fi and get away with it. You may steal from that company. You may get away with shady business dealings in order to steal money from your customers. You may get away with all of those things. But you will not get away with robbing God. You cannot. There is no stealth. There is no deception that will hide us from his eyes. He sees us. He sees our sin. He sees our theft. And he will not allow it to go unpunished. You see, the only thing is, is that if we're not going to be punished, something has to happen. We actually need something that we don't have which is the ability to justify ourselves. We need justification, but we don't have it. And we can't steal it. We can't steal what our soul most needs. We can't extort forgiveness from God. We can't rob Him of grace and mercy. You can't break in and just swipe His love. 
You can't steal these things, but Jesus came to give them. He came not to take, but to give. Even those who thought they could take his life couldn't. He says in John 10, I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay, down, lay it down of my own accord. Friends, here we are. Thieves and robbers, every single one of us. Stealing from others and stealing from God. And there is Jesus. Not a drop of self-interest in him. Not a bit of theft. Only giving. Only loving. And there he is, dying on the cross. Dying to pay our debt. Dying to forgive our sin. Dying to give us life. And there he is, hanging, as, as you know, between two thieves. And in a sense, friends, those thieves represent all of humanity. All of humanity. They represent us. Do you know how? Because they're both guilty. They're both rightly condemned to die. They are both staring death in the face with no hope. And according to Matthew 27, both of them join in with the crowd to mock Jesus, to sneer at Jesus, to insult Jesus, to criticize Jesus, to tear Jesus down. They just keep stealing right there from the cross. They're robbing Jesus of the glory he's due. And these two men are a portrait of all mankind in our sin, in our lostness, enemies of Jesus, mockers of Jesus. But the story doesn't end there. Because at some point, we're not sure what point, and we don't really know why, but one of the thieves begins to look at Jesus differently. Maybe he reconsiders what he knows of Jesus, what he knows about his ministry, what he knows about his character, what he knows about the betrayal and the arrest, what he knows about his, his trial and his death sentence. Whatever it is, somehow he concludes that he and Jesus are not the same. And so he thinks to himself, I, I deserve to die here. He doesn't. I, I've lived my whole life doing wrong, and he's done nothing wrong. I've lived my life as a taker, and all he's been doing is giving. I deserve to be condemned, and he doesn't. And they say he's the king. He's come to save. All the while, the other thief continues to mock Jesus, continues to sneer at Jesus. And so finally, this man speaks up. Do you not fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward for our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. Can you imagine the surprise? Can you imagine the surprise in the other thief? Looking at him like, where was my ally in this? The surprise in the crowd. People are wondering, wasn't this same guy just sneering at Jesus a little bit ago? And then I know he went silent for a bit, but here he is. He's changed his whole tune. What's going on here? And then 
The thief turns his eyes to Jesus. No longer eyes of mockery. He now looks at him with eyes of faith. Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. These are words of repentance. He's no, he, doesn't, he no longer has a thief's heart. His heart's not set on himself. His heart's not set on what his world, the world has. His heart's not set on what somebody else has that I can take. His heart's not set on what this life can offer. His heart is now set on Jesus. And Jesus, our great and compassionate Savior, looks at him and says, You will be with me today in paradise. Friends, that's good news for the thief. And here we are. Thieves, you are, and I am. We steal from others. We steal from God. Our sin robs God of the glory He's due. And like the thieves hanging on crosses next to Jesus, we're all staring at death in the face. That death, you may think, is decades away, and that death may come this very afternoon. None of us can actually know. But as sinners, as thieves, we too are rightly condemned to die. We are rightly condemned to face God's judgment forever. But the one who hangs on the cross between the thieves is hanging there because he loves us. He's hanging there to forgive us. He's hanging there to save us. He's dying to give us life. And all who follow the footsteps of this thief who repents, whose hearts will turn from themselves and turn to him and call out for mercy in the same way he did, Jesus, remember me. You will find that the Jesus who answered him will answer you in the same way. You will be with me in paradise. Won't you cry out to him? Won't you stop looking for something in this world that you think will satisfy you? Would you stop daydreaming about swiping things from other people because that will really solve your problems? Would you stop daydreaming about uh, uh, how you think money will solve your problems? Nothing will solve your problems. Nothing in this world will solve your problems. The greatest problem that we have comes at the end of this life and not at, during this life. And it's the fact that we as thieves will stand before God and there is a cross waiting for us. It's either us on the cross or it's Him. It's either we will pay or He has paid. The wrath of God will either swallow us up or it has swallowed our sins up in Jesus. It is one or the other, friends. Won't you cry out to Him? Won't you call on Him for mercy? Won't you plead with Him to remember you, to look at you in mercy, to forgive your sin? He will. Anyone who comes to Him in faith, He won't cast you out. He won't leave you. 
He won't forsake you. He'll take you by the hand and he'll walk you all the way through this life. And you may sometimes not know that his hand is holding yours. And it may feel at other times that it's got a really strong grip. But he's always there and he'll walk you all the way to the door of death. But he doesn't just say good luck at that point. He walks you through the door of death. And he says, Father, he's with me. She's with me. This one is mine. They look to me. Do you remember when we gave grace? Do you remember when the Spirit awakened the heart? And her eyes suddenly came to me and no longer saw one to ignore, but one to love and to follow and to give her life for. You see, that's actually what looking to Jesus does. It changes everything. It doesn't just change our standing with God. It, it changes us from thieves into givers, from those who take to those who give, from those who rob God of his glory to those who eat and drink and do everything to the glory of God. Dear friend, This Jesus will forgive you. No matter what you have taken from others, no matter what you have taken from God, no matter how deep and dark the thievery goes, this Jesus will forgive you. Won't you come to him? Let's pray. Our Father, how thankful we are For the grace and love in Jesus Christ. Because looking at your law bows our head, and looking to your Son lifts our head. We are thankful that there is no sin He will not forgive if we come in repentance and faith. Oh God, would you give grace to those who must turn to you even this morning. Would you help those of us who follow Jesus to not minimize theft, to not put it in one corner or limit its reach. Help us to feel the weight of your law that we might feel the joy of your salvation in Christ. And Lord, we pray that we would be a people who do not steal, but that we love our neighbor as ourself. We love you above all, and we give. And we ask this all in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. Would you stand?